then instead of being cast as Moses or, or, or Jesus, you know, you get cast as the sheep. <laughs> well, that's, that's actually, that was, my, that was my assignment. I was actually cast as the sheep for the nativity uh, scene play. And you can't mess that up, right? I mean, you just kind of, you know, when it's your turn to ba, you ba on, on cue. You can't mess that up. But I remember I was supposed to ba at a certain point, and when, when it was my turn to come, nothing literally came out. Like, uh, yeah, and, and everybody was yelling at me, like, ba, like, ba, like, say something, do something, and, and I, I couldn't do it. And um, I think ever since then, I've had just this death, death-defying fear of speaking. Whenever I would speak, actually, I'm kind of trembling right now, but it's kind of bringing back post-traumatic, you know, it, I'm, my hands would tremble so much just because I was so t- quiet and fearful and insecure. So you can imagine my hesitation when uh, our youth group hosted a time to tell evangelistic conference uh, for other youth groups as well as ours, and it came time to go actually out um, into the neighborhood and share the gospel in the back of my church. Well, I remember I really prayed to God, if you're going to answer my prayer, I pray that nobody will answer the door because I really don't want to do this, but uh, I kind of have to, and uh, my youth pastor is there, and he's going to give me pressure. And so I remember thinking that, and I, uh, we remember getting to this last home, in the, literally in the back of our church, like right around the back, and there was a guy working on his garage, and you know, he had like a chainsaw or something very dangerous. And, I, and it was clear, and I was like, Lord, you got to be kidding me. But it was clear that he wanted us to go talk to this guy. And this guy um, was clearly the guy who wanted to speak in. So we, I remember him being so gruff with us. He was just like, what do you want? Out with it. And I think I was just so scared. But I said something to the tune of, I really want to share Jesus with you. And I don't want to be cut by your chainsaw. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so we shared the gospel. It was just the Roman road. And uh, I remember us, him asking this challenging question. If I don't believe in Jesus, will I go to hell? And at that moment, something changed. I fear not the fact of speaking or his chainsaw, but at that moment, I feared the fault if I did not share the truth. And, but I mentioned that there is a hell, but that we didn't want him to go there and God didn't want him to go there. And that's why it mattered that trust in Jesus was so important. And I think, I don't know, I I believe it's the Holy Spirit because it wasn't us that he softened. And we stayed there for a while. And I remember he had some hesitations and just some questions. And he didn't give his life to Jesus because I think his hesitations stopped us. But he did thank us. And it was just through there of many experiences with my local church, with a youth pastor who would speak this very verse to me and warn me from being a people pleaser. You want to be a people pleaser um, or a God pleaser? And of course, I'm like, yeah, I want to be a God pleaser. Um, and, and just going out cold to the malls, almost getting kicked out of a mall um, and doing evangelism. I began to conquer my fear of man with a greater fear of God, I began to realize that God is worth it all. He's worth my heart. He's worth my life. He's worth my embarrassment and my anxiety. And I was open to the glory of the almighty God, his holiness. And I, I realized that he deserved my all. It's still a process. 
But that's been my story. I'd be the last person to stand here on this stage talking to you right now from the Word. Now picture that you were in front of Jesus when he has just said, you will be persecuted. I'm sure the disciples were just feeling undone with fear. Fear threatened to hijack their obedience to his call. That's why Jesus gave them, after a crazy clarion just talk about persecution, he gave them this charge to speak in to their fear. How did Jesus speak into the disciples' fear? Well, we're going to see three ways in which Jesus silenced fear in his disciples. Let's go ahead and stay with me in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. It says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, Proclaim on the housetops. Again, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. If you go over that and read through that, it does not paint a rosy picture. A life of suffering and persecution would lead most, if not all, of us to abandon ship on Christianity. If you had just listened to the last 10 verses, you'd be saying, no, uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. I don't need death. I don't need to be hated I don't need to be persecuted for the gospel's sake. I don't need all that because, you know, I got my life. I got my life. It's all comfortable. I got my, my, my two-car garage. I got my, my, my school. I got my grades. I got everything that I need. I don't need that. And to most people, they would say, I'm out. But what did Jesus say? The first thing he said was amazing. <laughs> he just said, have no fear of them. <laughs> have no fear of them. Isn't it amazing when Jesus says something that is just almost like matter of fact? Like, have no fear of them. <laughs> For nothing that is covered that will not be revealed. I think this speaks of how um, their enemies or the religious leaders and those that were in power would call them names, even accuse them of being indwelt with, by demons. Remember how just in the verse 23 and 24, remember that Jesus was accused that he was with, that he was Beelzebub, which means actually Lord of the Flies. Jesus said, if the master had been called that, how much more would they malign his household? The disciples were probably picturing the fact that they would be called demon worshipers and in fact demons, that they would be accused, mistreated, and, and killed for their faith in Jesus. So this is why Jesus helps them see the big picture. He helps them see the aerial view. He warns them of the judgment that is coming, but that this judgment is is only temporary. It will uncover the hidden. And one of the fears is that injustice will win the day and that justice will not be served. But Jesus is so resolute that God will serve up judgment. And on that day, Everything that was tried to be swept under the rug would be exposed. Every hidden secret will be known. What sins were committed that people you think will never find out would be exposed for all the world to see. And so we know this. We, we, we've been preached at this, that God will bring final restitutions and right all wrongs. 
He will correct every injustice, including what was done sinfully against the disciples and against all those who call themselves Christ followers. But it's different when you go out in the world or you just take a look at the news and you see major injustices and you cry out with the psalmist, Lord, how long? How long will babies be slaughtered? How long will Boko Baram be able to slaughter people and villages? How much will the suffering continue to go on? And we are fearful. We give ear to fear that God is not the God of ultimate justice. We think that just like the psalmist in, in Psalm 73, that he said that I almost slipped. I almost slipped because I saw the wicked and I, and I, oh, my feet almost slipped. I almost became a brute and stopped believing in God. There's one thing that gives ear, that gives ear to our fear, and that is injustice. That is the suffering and the, and the pain and the crying of this world that will give ear to fear more than anything else. And I think it is believing that, that there is no God, that there is no king, that there is no justice, that there is no ultimate um, restitution and redemption. And I remember one situation in which I was privy to the worst things I've ever seen in a previous church. And I struggled with the fact slander and gossip and false narratives ruled the day. And I cried out to God many times in my car, in my office, wherever I could. And I said, God, God, will you right this wrong? This is so wrong. And yet I was reminded of the fact that even if man does not see the truth, God sees it. And he will have the final say. So that even if nothing is ever served up, if this is just tossed over that this is freeing because God has justice. He sees the pain. He mourns the pain. He grieves it. And you know what? I can think of a million ways of justice, and I don't think most of my 99% of my ways of justice is really grounded in righteousness. God can take care of things a million better than I, than, than I can ever get them. I was freeing because I realized that I wasn't in charge. I was just called to trust in a God who does not sweep things under the rug. And even though things were a mess and still is, I am comforted that God is a God who would make all things right. He will hold sinners accountable. He will comfort the broken. He will humble prideful hearts. And he will right every injustice, especially against those disciples. And that's why Jesus encouraged the, the disciples to go public with Jesus. In verse 27, it says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. In Palestine in those days, housetop made a great platform for anyone who wanted to bring his message before a large number of people. Um, Jesus' message must go public. Concealment is not an option. Rather, disciples, the disciples are supposed to take what was whispered, what was supposed to be hidden, and give it full publicity. His message is just too important. His gospel is too grand. 
to be kept in. And the same thing goes for us. If you serve a God who will render judgment to every man who ever lived in human history, surely you could proclaim the gospel. And ultimately, God knows how people will respond to you, even if they desire to kill you. And so look at the next reason why we should not fear in verse 28. First, it was that the God is a God who has justice like no other. In verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The second way that Jesus silenced fear is reminding them that man is no match for God's power. Man is no match for God's power. Man only has his limits. They can kill the body, but they have no authority over the soul. If we should fear, we should fear the God who alone has authority to throw both body and soul into hell. And God has the power to do that. Who should you fear? You need not fear man. You need to fear God. Only he has the power to bring man into, into judgment, both body and soul. And, uh, and he has the power to bring judgment upon, upon man. And this is sobering because I think the very sense of hell is just very near. This is a clarion call to help the disciples to stand up and be bold and to be unafraid. They will receive rewards if they continue to persevere and share the gospel. But as the disciples are disloyal, they are serious and there are eternal consequences. And so that's why I think Jesus is telling them, hey, look how big your God is, but make sure you are not people pleasers. We got to fear. If we're going to fear somebody, you got to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But fear the God who has no limits. He can give and he can take away. And, and this fear of God should just control our thinking. We should not be concerned about what people say about us or what they think about us. You know, it was said of the saints of old that they feared man so little because they feared God so much. And I love reading, if I ever feel scared, or if I feel fearful, go and read a missionary biography. I implore you, go watch something. Go, I heard about, um, you know, sheep without wolves. I heard about that from, from uh, Jeff. Go, go watch that. Go, but I love reading. I'm just a nerd, and I like reading books. And so one of my missionary heroes is John Patton, and he was a Scottish missionary. I should, should tell you something. Um, Scottish people don't back down. Well, he went to the New Hebrides, which is now called Vanuatu, and it was a string of 400 islands in the South Pacific. And only 19 years before, missionaries had gone there only to been killed and eaten by cannibals. Missionary after missionary after mission went there, got killed, only to be answered with more. And so he sailed and he reached his island, Tana, but he wasn't killed. He had the unthinkable happen. His wife and his newborn um, son died of fever. And that alone, I think, that the grief from their death should have just grounded them. They, they should have just went back. And so, but something drove him. A fear not of man and a fear of God drove him to stay there for another four years, braving danger after danger after danger. 
Then he shortly left. He remarried. And then eight years later, he took his wife to another island. Imagine if you, you, were, <laughs> you were the, the second wife. <laughs> um, but he took him. And they went to another island, Anawa, where they built orphanages, they taught classes, they administered to the sick, medicine, they held a church service every Lord's Day, and then they sent native teachers to all villages to preach the gospel. And his autobiography just reads seriously like, it just, it's a thriller. It, it is just so good. I mean, you're watching shows like The Chosen or you're watching all these things. Man, this, this, is, this is awesome. I mean, you're, you're just feeling like you are with it, with him. And you get to feel the danger he constantly faced. He had no kickback time. He had no TV time. He had no lazy boy couch. I mean, every single day he had his clothes on because there's no telling when angry natives would burst in and want to kill him. Have you ever been chased to the point where you're feeling like you're going to get killed all the day? Romans 8. Yeah. I believe it. Romans 8 tells us that for your sake, we've been slaughtered all the day. We've faced, not only faced death, but we've experienced death all the day long. But what kept this man going was not his fear of man, it was his fear of God. And it would come out in the way that he would assail his assailants angrily and scold them for the bad behavior and then tell them about the gospel. Listen to him. He said, one morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men and a chief intimidated that they had assembled to take my life. Seeing that I was entirely in their hands, I knelt down and gave myself away, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus for what seemed the last time on earth. Rising, I went out to them and began calmly talking about their unkind treatment of me and contrasting it with all my conducts toward them. At last, some of the chiefs who had attended the worship rose and said, our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you and kill all those who hate you. <laughs> Years later, he wrote this. He said, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. And now over 150 years later, the island, which is now called Vanatu, identifies as 83% Christian, nearly 32% evangelical. I mean, isn't that powerful? his missionary, missionary sacrifice. And he was a human being. You may think you're like, man, how could you not waver? Yeah, he admitted he, his faith wavered at times to think that the gospel would be able to fully form and really break into this people who were cannibals and who believed in ancestral worship and human sacrifices. But he feared God more than man. And my friends, I think we need to serve. Remember that we serve the same God as John Patton. Amen? We serve the same God as John Patton did. If God could redeem cannibals, man-eating cannibals to himself, surely he can do the same thing with people that we know. Surely he can do the same thing because he is an amazing God and a powerful God and a God who works wonders till today. He's still speaking today. And he's still a God to be praised and is still a God to be feared. Now Jesus gives us another powerful reason why we should not worry. Look with me in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear. The Heavenly Father cares for you and cares for man like no other. You know, sparrows are not exotic pets. <laughs> They're not highly sought after in the bird market. I don't think anybody is invested in sparrow stocks. Um, so why would Jesus use the cheapest bird on the market to encourage us not to fear? Well, two sparrows sold for one 30, uh, 32nd of the minimum daily wage, which comes to about, uh, about 23 cents in today's world, literally a quarter. Um, literally, it's a throwaway amount. I mean, my kids can find more money in their bed <laughs> or in the cracks of their couch than that. And so two sp- these two sparrows are worth virtually nothing. Right? The world's not going to stop because two sparrows drop dead. And I was, I was, just, I was actually pondering this um, because I've, I've been thinking about it. And I was reminded of this about a couple weeks ago because we, um, I, was, I went outside to throw out my coffee grinds. And then there it was, a dead bird. Uh, and it didn't have a head. So <laughs> it's like, great. Um, Okay, I'm looking around, I'm like, uh, there's something living in my backyard. Um, it probably was the, the neighbor's cat, I think, but I'm not going to, I'll probably uh, talk to him later. But um, so I was like, okay, fine, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll clean up the trash. Um, I'm not going to tell the kids because they're going to be, they're going to be super excited about it. <laughs> I don't need to get super excited about dead birds. And so the next day, I found another dead bird in exactly the same place in my backyard, <laughs> also headless. <laughs> and um, it was, and I was just like, oh, come on, okay. So, you know, it's one of those things where the same thing happens, and you're just like, okay, God, I, I get you. you. You try to get my attention, aren't you? Um, and, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's really funny. Thanks for giving me some dead birds. <laughs> and that's when it hit me. I cared more about the inconvenience of taking out my shovel and throwing the thing in the trash. Where that sparrow, or whatever that bird was, do not drop apart from the knowledge and the purview of my Father. Completely insignificant. But there's not one, one moment where the Father did not turn his eyes and said, yep, I'll let that sparrow or that bird drop to the ground. Can you imagine then, if God has that view of you, of birds, how much more does he have of you? God knows you. And check this out, he knows the exact numbers of hairs on your head. It's not that God really cares about how many hairs you have, right? It's not like I told Christine, it's not like I'm telling Christine, you know, honey, I so love you and I've counted every single hair on your head. You have 999,500 Oh, look, there's one that dropped. Oh, 999,499. It's not that. It's not not like he really cares about the number. But he cares about the smallest insignificant details because it's something about you. He cares about the single insignificant details of the people he has made in his own image. This verb is also in the perfect tense in which signifies that this number stays on record. It's locked in God's heart and mind. 
You know, when you love a child, you know, and they're crying out because they got a splinter in their, in their foot or in their, in their hand, you won't be like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I, like, I love you, but um, sorry, you're just going to have to deal with that splinter. <laughs> you know, and, and if they're like two, right? I mean, I understand if they're like 15 and <laughs> they can't get a splinter out of their, their, um, their, their hands, but, but you'll love them. And you'll gingerly take their finger, and you'll take out the splinter, and you'll love them through it. You'll take out what crooks them mostly of pain, because you love them. And that's how our Father cares about you. He not only cares about the things that are most eternal, he cares about the things that are not so much very important on the eternity side of realm. He loves you. And if you, won't have, if you know how much a parent loves his child, how can you ever, ever imagine how much the Father loves you and cares for you? Your Father loves you like no other. That's why you don't have to fear men when they try to persecute you. Remember, the Father loves you. He holds you in his hands. He secures you with every passing moment. It doesn't matter what people are shouting at you or mocking you or insulting you. The Father's love is real and it is pressing, it is vigilant, and it grows ever the more stronger, more and more each day. His love for you never grows colder. It grows so much more zealous with every single passing day. And when your life spins out of control, there's not one fraction of it that is outside the master's reach. Even when you're persecuted, you're killed, you're injured, you're put on trial for the gospel's sake, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the case, that God's sovereign power, his justice, his love, are over you, so why are you fearing man? Jesus says you are much more valued than many spirits, and the greatest thing you can do is to fear God. Look at verse 33. Give your life in verse, uh, verse 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, this passage used to scare me, and I think it might scare you too. I was scared of failing in that hypothetical uh, situation in which a retreat speaker would always throw uh, at us on the last night of retreat. If you had put a gun to your head and a gunman asked you if you want to deny Christ or die, what are you going to do? <laughs> and then they would cite this verse. Anyone who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I would just be scared to death by this. Rightly so. I think we need to be uh, fearful. We need to have a weight your shit. When it comes to anything, when we are put on display and we are witnessing and we are sharing Jesus with people, that is true. But my faith was being driven by fear. And right, if I am pressed it, I will give my life to Jesus in a heartbeat. But wrongly, I pictured and I got scared thinking of that situation so many times of just screwing up that I would lose my salvation and be banished to hell forever. And I think that's what I, when I was looking at it before, 
I would look at it thinking that I can lose my salvation and also not looking at the passage in its entire context. But when you look at this passage in the entire context, this is the most comforting of all. Jesus demands wholehearted allegiance to him, yes. And that means we're going to endure difficulty, trial, and death, yes. Yet we can be comforted that God's justice, his power, and care will sustain us. And if that is true, we know that if man kills us, we serve a God who is stronger. They can kill our bodies, but God resurrects our souls. We can be comforted that in the midst of whatever we are struggling through, whatever suffering we are enduring, God cares for us deeply because not even a sparrow falls to the earth apart from the Father. But Jesus, in his word, he says, I will love you to the end. And because of the weight of God's love for us, because of the backing of God's love for us, now I find this passage to be so encouraging. When we acknowledge Jesus on earth, whenever you acknowledge Jesus as the author and the perfecter of your faith, whenever you acknowledge Jesus with an answered prayer, whenever you proclaim the glory of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus by saying, it's not me, it's God, you know what you're doing? You are acknowledging before men the greatness and the grandness of Jesus Christ, your king and your advocate. Because when we acknowledge Jesus on earth, then Jesus himself will acknowledge us in heaven. In other words, Jesus himself will serve as your advocate. So picture you're in heaven, and though the enemy maybe try to condemn you, maybe yourself, your guilt, may just try to condemn you because of your many screw-ups, God doesn't throw you out of heaven. He not only prays for you, but now he steps up into your side. And when you sin, as Dane Nortland writes in Gentle and Lowly, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. He pleads your case before the Father. He fights for you. He would acknowledge you before the Father. And the Father, on the basis of Christ's defense, will say, I have judged you. I have the power to destroy both body and soul. But at the same time, I love you. And I've sent Jesus Christ to live perfectly in your place. And I've sent him to die on the cross to take the full weight of your sin. And I have raised him from the dead after three days because my son is the final sacrifice. He is the final answer that I have sent in redemptive history. I've sent the law, I've sent the, the, the prophets, but now I've sent in these final days my son to be the exchange for your sin. And now you receive my righteousness. My son acknowledges you. And if my son acknowledges you, I acknowledge you. That's why you're my child. And that's why this message is, can look like a downer, but it is profoundly, profoundly encouraging. It means that whenever I screw up like Peter, Jesus is not going to cast me out. Jesus is my advocate. He steps onto my side. He's not content just to pray for me, but he steps onto my side and he's fought for me, giving his own life to death. For anyone who might trust in Jesus Christ as the sole answer to their sin problem and gives their life in full surrender to Jesus, that he will come and he'll take care of every failure, he'll cover your every sin, he'll cover your every trouble, and he will silence all fear. This is the mission in which God has called us. And because of this, Jesus silences all fears. We are called not to be silent about Jesus. We are called to speak the name of Jesus boldly and persistently, just like John Patton. 
Elliot Clark, who's a missionary in Muslim nations, said that in reality, if we haven't or aren't currently dealing with some level of reproach and shame in this nation, it's likely owing to the fact that we haven't been practicing bold and biblical evangelism in the first place. You know, somehow we have left it up to the apologetic of invitationalism. If somebody is struggling or they need to hear the gospel, oh, we're just going to invite them to church and let the professionals do it. Or we got lattes, we got coffee, we got this and this, right? But when we do that, when we invite people, but we don't go to them and don't boast to them about Jesus, we got it all backwards, right? Because I think sometimes we're, not, we're so scared of people that we're scared of offending them, right? But we have to realize that the gospel is, by nature, offensive, we try not to be stupid about it being offensive with people, but we also have to realize that the gospel, we've got to speak the truth in love. And maybe the reason why we just got easy lives is because we're not practicing the evangelism in the first place, boldness. So as we wrap this up, as we invite the, the music team to come forward, I was just so convicted of this, and I wondered how I can just encourage you all. And I think that the main thing is this. I just want to encourage you that if you are, have fears that threaten to silence you, do you know what the best way to silence those fears? It's just worship. When your apologetic and when your evangelism is about worship, when you just can't help but share about the mysteries and the gospel and the goodness of God, um, it just flows out of you. And when you do that, your joy, your, your love, your concern, your compassion, and your, your gladness just comes out, ringing out of you, right? And so I want to encourage you as we worship that you would take a stand against fear. And you would take a stand how? By worshiping Jesus, by giving him glory, by speaking and being bold to say, God, you have done this in my life, and to do it in front of others. And I just want to encourage you to be bold and be persistent because as you share, the, share Jesus out of a lifestyle of worship, then the Lord just moves in powerful ways, and he will bring people to you closer and draw them closer to him. So let's all stand and as we stand and as I invite the, the prayer team to come forward, I want to invite you to, to see in your life and repent of places in which you've been not have silenced fear. You have not put the mute button on, on fear because you have not worshipped. You have not feared the God who can throw both body and soul into hell. Will you just spend some time in repentance? time praising God simply for who he is and for what he has done for you. Remember his salvation. Remember the glories, the, the highs and the lows. 
Think of how he has loved you to the very most insignificant detail. And then let's be bold. Let's be unabashed. Today, tomorrow, let's just ask the Lord for, to fight against fear because of the great love, care, and justice of God, that we would be bold in our evangelism, that we would have the opportunity to share what we have just shared with God as a worship of praise to our God before others, to bring people to a loving God. Can we do that? Father, we just thank you so much, and we praise you. We ask, God, that you would silence all fear in this place, that the enemy has holds over us any strongholds, anything, we release them in Jesus' name. And we ask that, Lord, you would speak truth and uh, speak boldness, speak love, speak care into our hearts today. Father, that we would be bold and unabashed. That, Father, that we would be not afraid, even if it means that we need to approach some very serious subjects. But, Lord, that we would be worshipful in our attitude that we'll be able to worship you and glorify you as we witness and as we share about you, that we are proclaiming it on the housetops that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to prayer and come forward.